Good morning, church. Is this not the best winter ever? Does it feel that way to you? I'm thinking warmer weather's brighter and good snow. I don't, I can't remember a summer or a summer. I can't remember a winter quite this good in quite a while. Um, praise God for that. Uh, if you take out your Bibles, uh, we are continuing on in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And as always, uh, we go to the Lord uh, before we go to his word because we need his help that he would be our teacher. So let's pray uh, together. Uh, Lord, that line in the song that we just, uh, we just sang, you made this sinner holy. You made this sinner holy. What a profound truth. Um, we didn't do it. It's amazing to even claim that adjective, holy. It's amazing to think that that's how you look at us. Uh, for certainly it's not in and of ourselves that we are holy, but we know the truth of the gospel, that your son Jesus is holy, and he is the propitiation for our sins. He died in our place. So you look not to our sin, for that was crucified in him, but you look to his righteousness, his holiness transferred to us. You made sinners holy in Christ. Um, I believed it as a young boy. And it still astounds me today. And I pray that I would never grow tired or lethargic or complacent about the beauty of the gospel. And I pray that that would just ring through uh, the text this morning through our hearts as we listen uh, to your word, and we ask that it would change our hearts. Uh, we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, over the past couple of weeks, we've been talking about uh, the gospel, or how Paul refers to it here in 2 Corinthians, uh, the treasure of the gospel. And this morning, I want to do a little bit of recap before we go into this final third uh, of uh, what was sort of a two-part sermon that I had last week. Uh, if you remember this treasure of the gospel, this is something that we possess by God's grace in these jars of clay, right? These fragile vessels, these human bodies, these very ordinary, useful but fragile bodies that God has given to us. And we discovered that actually there is a goodness to this weakness that we have in our human bodies because our own frailty shows that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. And so we have been made, we have been meant to be sort of like windows through whom people can look and see the glory and the beauty of Christ Jesus. They are not meant to see the glory of Eric, thank God or the glory of Sue, or Jill, or Pete. Uh, uh, they, they are <clears throat> meant to see the glory of Christ through us. And so we see that there is a goodness even to our weakness as it relates to God's priorities. And then we kind of traced out Paul's thoughts um, sort of along the lines of the implications of the treasure of the gospel as it relates especially to bodily existence here now and then on into the intermediate state between death and the resurrection of our future bodies, and then into glorified bodies, where I've argued before that God will give us bodies to die for. What a great thing, especially in a season in Fairbanks where we're all experiencing 
the flu and colds and the cough. I mean, has anybody not been touched by this? Because I want your antibodies if you've gotten away from it. We will have bodies to die for. Last week, we focused on sort of the life-changing impact of the gospel treasure, particularly on certain spheres of relationship or certain relational spheres of our life. The first being, and you can look at this on your notes to kind of get a running start into where we are this morning, we saw how the gospel changes our view of ourselves, how we see ourselves in God's world. Because of the gospel, we now see ourselves as accountable to God. Uh, Since we know what it is to fear Him, uh, we are accountable to Him. We know that there is a judgment coming one day for believers, a unique privilege, the Bema seat of Christ, the judgment seat of Christ, where we will give an account of what we've done in our bodily life for the purposes of rewards. Because of this, because the fact we will stand before the throne of God, we're really not too worried about the opinion of others around us. For God will examine our lives and what we've done for Him. And we've learned that the love of Christ is something that ought to compel us to share the gospel when we really truly grasp the love and the affection that Christ has for us that was poured out at the cross that ought to motivate us to share the gospel. I've talked with you about how motivated I have been to share the gospel of my boiler, right? Pretty good news in my life. And yet those realities pale in comparison to the gospel of God. And if I really grasp what God has done for me in Christ, I will be eager to share. We live now for Christ. And then we also saw how the gospel changes our view of others. In other words, we sort of put away or put aside these outward assessments. Uh, We no longer look at someone from a worldly point of view and sort of these outward external uh, descriptions of who they are. There are no ordinary people. We kind of focused on the idea that every person that we encounter is eternal has an eternity set before them, will either spend eternity in eternal conscious punishment if if the guilt and weight of sin is still upon them, or will spend eternity with the Father in heaven, deeply loved and deeply cherishing their presence there because they've taken refuge in Christ Jesus. And so we see the weight and the gravity of this treasure of the gospel. And that brings us to our third point, How about that? We're already two-thirds of the way through the sermon. The gospel changes our view of God, or specifically our view of God's work in this world. So follow along with me in verse 16, if you would, uh, 2 Corinthians 5. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. Isn't that a sobering reality? We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. As God's co-workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. For he says, in the time of my favor, I heard you. 
and in the day of salvation I helped you. I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. And so what we see here is that for those of us who are in Christ Jesus, for those of us who have responded to the gospel in repentance and faith, and let me just be clear about that, there is no way that anyone can, de- can hold the title or the, I- the identification as a Christian unless you have repented of sin and received Christ's sacrifice on your behalf. But for those of us who have done that, we find that a radical transformation has occurred. So dramatic that the scripture calls us a new creation. And I want to linger in this for a little bit this morning because I think it's very easy for those of us who have been Christians for a while to forget the actual transformation that has occurred in us. And I want to linger in that a little bit. C.S. Lewis has captured this so well, maybe better than most. I quote him so often, you'd think I actually like reading the guy, and I've confessed to you that I kind of don't. I just like his quotes. <coughs> but he has referred to this in his book, Mere Christianity, saying that God did not come to make nicer people, but new men, new creations. And so let me just, let's just take some time here. I want to remind you uh, of what I hope you already know by way of stirring your affections so that you would really appreciate the transformation that God has done in your life so that we wouldn't forget. Objectively, some things have taken place. First of all, God has transformed us as those who were guilty before God to those who were considered not guilty. That is, we have been justified, justified by faith. It's one of the most remarkable things that's actually hard to come to grips with because we so badly want to earn things in life. And yet it is simply by faith in Christ's sacrifice for us that we are justified before God, transformed from guilty to not guilty. We also find that we, those of us, uh, and that was all of us, we once upon a time loved sin, but we have been transformed to those and are being transformed into those who no longer love sin but love God and long to worship and and obey Him. We call this sanctification. The, the position that we have in Christ as justified is being worked into us in reality. So we've been justified. We've been sanctified. And we, we have become those, we have been transformed to those whose destiny was once judgment and condemnation. That was our default position. That's the default position, position of mankind. But we have been transformed to those who's, who can be confident about eternity and about a glorification that is coming. So objectively, we have been justified. We are being sanctified. We will be glorified. This is what has changed for the Christian. Subjectively, maybe what we experience at an internal level is we find that we have been forgiven for our sin. And we're brought back into dynamic relationship with God. We were once those who were steeped in sin. Now we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God who resides within us. We're sealed in him. From those who were once able only to sin, that he's even doing right things, but from the wrong motives, only able to sin. Now we are able to obey with, by the power of the Holy Spirit. We're able to do what we were not able to do before. We've been transformed from those who were wandering earth for lack of purpose and meaning. Have been called back to Jesus and called to discipleship and following him and finding that our lives are be, being reoriented in discipleship. 
We've died to sin, been born again, adopted into the family of God, transferred out of the dominion of darkness into the kingdom of the Son he loves. And these are, this is the language that the scripture uses to describe the transformation that has happened in us. It's remarkable, and I'm just hitting the high points. You can see why the description that is used is new creatures or born again. That we have been reconciled to God in Christ is not just a way of saying, well, now I'm a nice person. Or now I go to church. But now I am a new creature. I was spiritually dead. And by God's grace, I am spiritually alive in Christ. Secondly here, <clears throat> have I even given you any notes yet? I haven't. I'm way behind. There we go. See how far we are? Secondly, our transformation is a result of God's initiative and work. Verse 18 reminds us of this, that all of this remarkable work, the treasure of the gospel, God's rescue of mankind, God reconciling us to himself in Christ, all of this is from God. Uh, And so our pride is kind of offended again, right? Uh, Not only were we sinners alienated from God, but we didn't even rescue ourselves, apparently. Uh, I love what Augustine says about this. God being God offends human pride. And so our pride is offended yet again. Um, But we're reminded here throughout the passage that all of this was the initiative of God, the agency of God, the plan of God. The work performed by God, the Son, was the one who came and lived the perfect life that we couldn't live. And he became the propitiation for our sins. we got a video game going on back here, don't we? (laughs) It's coming. I think it's very easy in a contemporary Christian world, especially with some of the contemporary Christian music we hear today. I think it's very easy to sort of pat ourselves on the back in a very me-centered world. To give ourselves credit, we found our way to God. We were clever. We were smart. We did the work. We virtually rescued ourselves. God was just the tool we used. But on virtually every page of the scriptures, we see that it is God who has been the steady pursuer of mankind. And it is captured here in those simple words, all of this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ. And so that our position with God has been restored is purely an act of his grace and his mercy. Uh, Elsewhere in Romans, Paul makes it again clear in another way. He says, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. His love was given for us at that moment. Not in the moment of of our best, but in the moment of our worst, while we were still sinners. And so we're meant to see here that salvation is the result of God's activity his agency, God funded our reconciliation. We did not. Okay, now thirdly. Here we go. Uh, God has given to us the ministry of reconciliation. All of this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ not counting people's sins against them. 
and he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Um, we often speak in, uh, about a favorite passage of ours. Let me just say this. This passage that I just read, this is one of the great commissions. Uh, and I say that to needle you just a little bit. Because we often think of the passage in Matthew, Matthew 28, the singular great commission. And I would tell you that in the scriptures, I think there are several. I don't mean different or contrasting or contradicting, just several statements of the same kind of commission that God has given to his people. And so we do see it in Matthew, right? Then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Ah, the Great Commission. It's like a warm blanket, right? We love that passage, and we should love that passage. But I think there are several Great Commissions, and we see another one in Acts 1.8, of the same kind, of the same stripe. But you will be my witnesses. You will receive power, and the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of, earth, ends of the earth. And this passage in 2 Corinthians 5 is also a commissioning text. It tells us the ministry that God has laid out for us, and it is spelled out here, the ministry of reconciliation, reconciling man to God. And that is one of the, just one of the beautiful things about this particular passage is that it reminds us of the privilege that we have as followers of Christ. Not those who just get in line behind him, but those who have been deputized and entrusted with the ministry that matters most to the heart of God. The reconciling of man to God. In other words, this passage really answers two big questions for us. And that is, what is the mission of the church? And what is the method of the church? And <clears throat> I want to give you some examples of this here and kind of relate to this very personally. Uh, there are constantly temptations for the church to do otherwise. Okay? One of the really difficult things for me personally as your pastor, as being a senior pastor of a church, is quite frankly that everybody wants access to you all. And so they call me and say, could we use your platform? Could we you do this. Could we get you to mobilize your church to such and such uh, an end? And um, so I get calls all the time from people who really want to use my position with you to mobilize you to any number of uh, actions, social, political, and a variety of ministry things as well. And I will tell you that it's always hard for me to weigh these things out. And in fact, that is one of the ways that you can pray for me steadily. Uh, I would covet your prayers that God would give me wisdom as we kind of hear these kinds of things that come to us. And many of these invitations can sound really good. Um, but when I come back to the text and I square them with what God has given to us as a mandate, I'm reminded that many of these other initiatives are quite frankly not good enough. That is, they don't pass the critical litmus test of the mission of the church. 
So let me give you an example of this. And I want to ask for your very careful attention right now because I'm going to make some comments that could be very easily misunderstood, okay? So if you're tired, weary, you've only been half listening, please wake up now and please hear me carefully, okay? Thank you. Um, I don't say that very often, do I? I received a phone call this past week about the city ordinance that has been circulating. Many of you know about it and have been following it. And I have been watching this ordinance uh, very carefully, uh, particularly with an eye towards religious exemption, that what was being asked of the community at large, that the church and religious establishments would be exempt from some of that because it violates, I believe, our conscience before God to, to practice the free exercise of our religion. So I've been watching that. was relieved to see that the ordinance had been changed, and I'm not here to say that the ordinance was perfect. I'm also not here to mobilize you to one way or another on this thing, okay? I'm being very careful here. Um, but I got a particular a phone call just this past week basically saying we want to ask that we're calling all of the churches because we want them to call the mayor and ask him to veto this ordinance. And that phone call was a little tough for me because my first question was, what, what problem do you have with it? Just wanted to listen to their, uh, to their issues, and I heard that. And then my second question was, why are you just calling churches? Their justification was that there are some safety and civil issues here. And I thought, okay, but why then are we making it a religious issue by calling and mobilizing the church? Here's my problem with that. And again, I'm not trying to tell you what to think or believe on the ordinance, okay? My problem with that is the church is not a political machine. The church was never intended by God to be primarily an agent of social change. Uh, let me say it in a spicy way here. This is where I might get in some trouble. As a Christian, I'm not nearly concerned about where someone goes to the bathroom as I am about where they're going to spend eternity. Now, as a citizen, as a citizen of Fairbanks, I am to bring my faith to the polls, to my voting. I should be engaged in the affairs that are going around in the city around me. I should be active, and my faith should inform my decisions. And that's a responsibility I have as a citizen of Fairbanks. But as a citizen of heaven... I have a higher responsibility of much greater importance. So I'm not saying that these are an exclusion to one another, but the problem that I have is when you take the church and say, we're going to take this and make it an instrument only of social change. We have the burden and responsibility of spiritual change. Quite frankly, the social issue is too small, and the gospel is too great to swap and to neglect that stewardship. And so my litmus test is when these issues come, and I am, whether it's a, a new ministry initiative or a, uh, whatever, whatever kind of thing, as they come across my desk, the litmus test that I look at is that we have been given a very specific mandate by God, the ministry of reconciliation, to reconcile lost mankind to God himself. And we've been given a very specific methodology that is the message of reconciliation, the gospel, that this has occurred in the person of Jesus Christ. And here's the other thing. What's so tempting for me at these, at, at, when some of these phone calls come is I actually think the church could be very effective in them. I mean, in terms of organization, we could mobilize a whole lot of people because there are a whole lot of churches and they're sort of already organized, if that makes sense. So it's tempting because I think we probably could make some of the changes that people desire on a social level. 
But here's the problem. If the church abandons its mandate and its mission to reconcile mankind to God, and it abandons the gospel, there is nobody on earth who will pick up that mantle. It has been entrusted to the church, entrusted with the gospel, entrusted with disciple-making. And I want to tell you, church, I will not abandon that post. As long as you call me to be your pastor, that is my first and foremost passion. As a citizen of the community, I have other responsibilities, and I will do them. In fact, I spent a good amount of time this weekend writing some letters. Uh, I feel like I'm doing that more and more these days. But as a Christian, as a citizen of heaven, I have a responsibility and a calling to the ministry of reconciliation and to the message of reconciliation that is the gospel itself. That's our final point. God has entrusted us with the message of reconciliation. And what is that message? Let's remind ourselves. We are, therefore, Christ's ambassadors. Man, that's, that, we ought to just stop right there and sit down and cry when we think about the fact, I'm the vessel he's choosing. I'm the mouthpiece. I'm the ambassador. You are? Now I'm really afraid. No, I'm just kidding. That's sobering. That's sobering. As though God were making his appeal through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. This is the heart of Christians, that we would grab the ears of those that we love, truly love them, and say, be reconciled to God. Please, for Christ's sake and for your own sake, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This last verse here, 521, this is just one of the great distillations of, of the gospel message in all of the scriptures, isn't it? It's, it's just beautiful. And I think it reminds us of just how beautiful the gospel is, its message is, that you were once not right with God. And he loved you even in that state. And he has made you right at great cost and sacrifice to himself. Tim Keller has said it this way very memorably. The gospel tells us that we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. But we are most more loved and accepted in Christ than we ever dared hope. I don't know how that guy does it, but he constantly distills things down in a way that annoys me. <laughs> it blesses me, but as a communicator, it annoys me, you know. In other words, the gravity of our problem is revealed in the gospel, but also the greatness of God's solution. When people come to know this God, and they are made spiritually alive, when they repent of sin and turn to Christ, turn to God in saving faith, uh, all of those remarkable things that I started out this message with occur. Um, and wonderfully, a person begins to order their life around their true and profound love of God himself. I was listening to a brother this week uh, who shared his testimony with me. It is always a blessing to hear someone's testimony, isn't it? To hear their story of conversion and coming to salvation. But he said this, and it's been ringing in my ears all week. He said at the moment of his conversion, all of the sins I once loved, I now hated and the God I had ignored, 
I now found a natural love and affection for. Aren't those sweet words? And this, and this young man began to reorient his life around that love. And my friends, that's what the gospel can do. That is the ministry that God has entrusted to us. The ministry of reconciliation. That is the message God has entrusted to us. The message of reconciliation, the gospel. And so I want to close with these final words here in the passage. So as God's co-workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. For he says, in the time of my favor, I heard you. And in the day of salvation, I helped you. I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. My friends, don't let the other issues eclipse your first calling. Other callings may flow out of that. But this is our first calling. So let me pray for us. And before I do that, I do want to just say one last thing here. If anything that I have said has created confusion uh, or difficulty for you, I truly am uh, willing to talk with you. Sometimes I make a joke about that and say, email me. I can delete fast. No, I really mean I would be happy to talk to you. If you'll, if you'll meet me in person or you'll share with me your name, I'm happy to discuss uh, what concerns if you have any. So for those who have been asked to uh, serve the Lord's Supper, if you prepare yourself, Uh, to serve us, and I will uh, take us before the Lord that we might prepare our hearts. Father, the gospel is great. It is great. The greatest news ever shared, the greatest news ever heard. And the more we believe it and the more we saturate our lives in it, the more we rejoice, the more we want to share, the more we want to be about your mission. Rejoicing in the method that you have given. God, there are a lot of other good things that we may feel called to do on this earth. And may we be responsible before you as you direct our conscience to those, those efforts. But may we as a church never abandon our mission and our method. The reconciling of man to God through the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ who died for us. This is sacred. This is special. And so we turn our hearts again to the gospel message, rehearsing its implications for us and the world around us as we come to the Lord's table and remember the broken body and the poured out blood which secured our pardon. We pray this in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.